Well, join me in Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our study through this wonderful book, Ephesians chapter 4. Got a question for you. Are you alive today? Now, I know we don't necessarily feel like it. Um, We had an hour of our lives just like robbed from us, and it's a uh, pretty horrifying feeling. But how many of you are saying, I am alive here this morning? Okay, some hands are not going up. Uh, Those of you who know CPR, we need to spring to action. How do you know that you are alive today? Uh, Okay, some delayed hands are coming up. Okay, good. So it's sort of like the the Windows problem where you double-click on it, and then it's like, oh, hey, I'm going to open now. Um, How do you know that you're alive today? Well, maybe you're like, well, I'm here, and I'm cognizant of what is going on, and I'm awake. I'm looking at you. I'm blinking. Uh, maybe if we wanted to be a little more medical to say, how do we know that we're alive? You say, well, well my, my heart is beating, and so there, there are signs of life. I can put my finger on my wrist, and yep, there, there is a pulse. I can check on my Apple Watch, and the heart is still beating. Uh, maybe if you were in a more clinical environment, they could hook up some machines to you and say, yes, there is brainwave activity. Uh, sometimes I question if there is much going on with, in my own mind, but brainwave activity, there's a pulse, there's a heartbeat, uh, you're blinking, there's, there's reflexes of something's coming towards your eye and you can move out of the way that, that are sort of signs that you are alive. Um, in a medical setting, there would be those kinds of things that would be done to determine whether there is life or not. We've been talking in this in a section of Ephesians about the fact that we have new life in Christ. Let's just go, we'll back up a little bit to where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Just want to read the verses leading into this. Kind of give us a runway. Remind us where we have come from. So follow along in your copy of God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible today, you can follow along in one of the pew Bibles that is there in front of you. Or if you've got an app, however you want to follow along God's Word. I encourage you to have your Bibles out because I want you to be able to see what I am saying is not my opinion here today. We're not particularly interested in in my opinions. We want to know what God's Word says. Ephesians 4.17. This I say, therefore, and this I is Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's not just giving his opinion either. This is God's truth. And insist, testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as the other Gentiles walk, In the vanity and the futility of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. He's saying, remember before you were saved, you were in spiritual darkness. You did not know God's truth. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, okay, that's debauchery, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. He's saying, okay, that's what you used to be. But the gospel has wrought a fundamental transformation in your life. You were, in a sense, dead, but now you're alive. You were in darkness, but now you're in light. If so be you have heard him, okay, you've heard the gospel, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, you've had an encounter with the gospel message, and hopefully that's been true of you here today. You've come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what you learned. You learned that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old lifestyle, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. When you became a Christian, you died to your old self. The totality of your life, it was put into a grave. You died to the old new, and you were made new. You were taught to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, this ongoing work of sanctification, of growth, of being changed. One of the ways you know that you have been changed is you are being changed. And you were taught... Verse 24, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So there's been a fundamental change that's happened. If you're a Christian, you've come from death to life, from light to darkness, from, uh, or from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness. 
Now, verse 25 is saying, here's the implications of it. If you're alive, here's the signs of life. You say, I'm alive here today. Hey, there's a pulse. I'm alive here today. The heart is beating. I'm alive here today. Uh, I'm alert. I'm awake. You're alive as a Christian. Here's some signs of life. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have... You may have to give to him that needeth, so you have something to give away. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. you There are many people who claim today to be spiritually alive. You can look at Gallup polls and just the percentage of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've I've had a born-again experience, but there are no signs of life. There's no spiritual signs of life. There's no spiritual pulse or, or evidence of a change. This text lays out five signs of spiritual life. You say, I want to just do a quick evaluation of my own soul. Am I spiritually alive? Have I been born again? Now, the interesting thing about this passage is you'll notice there's a bunch of commands. Uh, this is the paradox. This is the tension in the Christian life. Is there are going to be there's going to be fruit in the Christian life, but it is not automatic, right? It is inevitable by the working of the Holy Spirit to prompt our hearts and to change our desires. But one of the ways you know that you're saved is you get these commands, be angry and sin not, and say, I want to obey that. One of the the ways you know that you're a Christian is you look at your life and you take stock, and as the years go by, you see more and more evidence of these five transformations in your life. I used to, to tell lies, but more and more I'm speaking the truth. I used to have uncontrolled anger, but now my anger is being directed in a, in a righteous and holy way. I used to steal and, and rob and take people's reputations from them and steal glory, but now I'm generous. I used to have foul language, but now I'm using my speech to build people up. I used to be angry and bitter and unforgiving, but now I'm forgiving because Jesus has forgiven me. These are not changes that happen overnight. These are changes that happen more and more as we go through the Christian life. And as you're a Christian, you should see them more and more in your life. And if you are not seeing them in your life, you may be to back up and say, have I passed from death unto life? Am I really saved? Am I really on my way to heaven? Have I been born again? You see, the way you know you're alive is not simply that you have a birth certificate. Too many people say, I know that I'm saved because on you know, December 14th, 1996, I prayed a prayer, and so now I'm good to go. But if all you have is a piece of paper, but there's no pulse or heartbeat or breathing or brain activity, it doesn't matter what that piece of paper says. You're, you're not actually alive. We need to look for the evidence, the signs of life, the signs that I have been saved. And there's five of them in this text. So what does the new life look like? What should my life look like as a Christian? I say, I'm a believer in Jesus. What evidence should be there? What way should I be growing in? What way should I be different? What signs should be there? Well, let's walk through these. The first sign of new life, the first evidence that I have passed from death to life 
is increasingly experiencing and exhibiting honest communication. Okay, verse 25. And you'll notice how simple this text is. It's pretty self-explanatory. Put away lying, verse 25 says, and speak truth every man to his neighbor. We talked last week about the way that we change. Remember, we talked about those principles. There's a regeneration principle, and there's this renewal principle. One of the principles we talked about was the replacement principle. The way that we experience change in our lives is not by saying, oh, I'm just going to stop negative behavior, but you replace it right, with, with the opposite righteous behavior. We see that exhibited here. In fact, we see it with all of these commands. You'll notice all five of these categories have something that you put out of your life, that you put away from your life, like a, like a filthy, filthy garment that you cast aside, and something that you put in its place, right? It's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to quit telling lies. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? If you just say, I'm going to quit telling lies, eventually the lies will come back in. I'm going to replace and drive the lies out with a commitment to speaking truth. You'll also notice every one of these commands gives me a reason. We ultimately do what we do because we love what we love. And what this passage will do for us is give us the new love and the new reality that has come in because we're Christians. So verse 25 says you put away lying, you replace it with speaking truth. For reason, we're members one of another. There's like a brand new circumstance that exists in my relationships with other people because I'm a believer in Jesus. So put away lying. Uh, we often think of lying as, well, you know, someone who just lies straight to your face when there's evidence against it. I love seeing those, some of those viral videos that go around. And here's the kid. He's got chocolate all over his face. He's got the ice cream in his hand. And mom's like, did you get into the ice cream? No, mommy, I didn't. We're like, well, that's obviously, obviously lying. Or someone who puts their hand on a Bible and says, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or I swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And then they obviously don't do that. Well, that's obviously lying. But we are so adept at lying. This is so ingrained to the old life, the old way of life before we were Christians. It's so ingrained in our fallen nature to defy the truth. Lying is prevalent in our society. It's one of those respectable sins that is so widely tolerated, we begin to not even notice it anymore. We accept lying on social media, right? I'm going to put a filtered picture that makes me look like I'm 40 pounds less than I really am to make everyone think something that is not true. What is lying? Lying is speaking or saying or doing something that is designed to make people think something contrary to the truth. Okay, it's one thing when you just are misinformed. It's another thing when you say, I deliberately want someone to think something and believe something that's contrary to the truth. Either because I'm going to omit something or I'm going to deliberately say something or I'm going to exaggerate something. You know, the fish story where the fish keep getting bigger and heavier in every telling and the waves are a little bit bigger next time we tell the story. A few years ago, I think we had a really good example of it. Um, What's the name of the anchor who was on NBC tonight? And his story originally, he was in helicopters over Iraq, and one of the helicopters got shot, and they had to land. And every time he told the story, the story got a little bit bigger to where he was on, like, Jay Leno or something, and he got shot down. And the people who were on the helicopter, they're like, that never, that, that didn't happen. I think what happens is the more we tell our lies, we actually begin to believe our lies. That's scary. The person you lie to the most is often yourself. I'm a good person. I don't have a problem. I don't struggle. Put away lying of all kinds. Lying is immensely serious. I had Raymer read the Ten Commandments earlier to remind us 
These things that we just kind of excuse lying or spreading disinformation or sharing things on social media that we know are not true, but they make us feel good or they prove my point is immensely serious. God is a God who is truth. Lying is bad not just because it destroys social trust. Lying is evil because it is contrary to the character of God. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Every utterance we make, beloved, is made in the presence and within the earshot of an infinitely holy God. It is as if we have put our hand on a Bible and raised our right hand. And yet how often do we commit perjury in God's sight? because of the way that we play fast and loose with the truth. Satan is called the father of lies. Revelation 21.8 says that all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. Very simply, God hates lying so much, all liars will go to hell. All liars. Which means every single one of us have told a lie at some point in our lives, and you say, I've never told a lie, you just told a lie, deserve hell because of our lie. The only way to to be spared from that punishment is for someone to take it in my place. And that's exactly what Jesus has done so that I can be forgiven. Now, how do I know I've been forgiven for my way of lying? Well, now now that I've been saved, I put away lying. Putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. This is an individual responsibility. Every single one of us who are Christians, every one of us who have been saved, need to make the commitment in our hearts to say, I am going to put on truth telling. This is going to be a way of life. John Stott writes, it's not enough to put off the old rags. We need to put on the new garments. In other words, we need to commit ourselves to saying, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. That must be a way of life. It is because Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I say, well, Jesus has now taken over the control center of my life. Truth will now become the standard of my communication. Now, why, verse 25 says, why we should do this? Because we're members one of another. We have, as Christians, a new relationship with each other. We're members one of another is not just a way to say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, we, we kind of are in the same building. No, because Jesus died on the cross for us, because the Spirit of God indwells us, we have been made part of the body of Christ. That's that image of members, body parts. Think about how crazy it would be if your eyes were constantly lying to your feet. Where your eyes were saying, yeah, there's no Legos on the floor, and you go walking out on those horrible things, and they're digging into your feet. If if your eyes were lying to your feet about where you were going, or if your ears were lying to you all the time about, you know, whether you're on a slope or things are flat, and you have no sense of balance. Bad things happen when the systems of your body don't work properly, where they're not sending good information to the brain. And beloved, the same is true in the church. When we are not speaking truth, when we are deceiving one another or refusing to speak truth to each other, there can't be a healthy body. Now, speaking truth one to another is more than just saying, I'm going to be honest. Speaking the truth, what is the truth ultimately in Ephesians? Look back in Ephesians 1 and verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The truth is ultimately not just what corresponds with reality. The truth is, is speaking the truth to one another is not just saying, well, my word will always be my bond. That's part of it. Part of it is saying, I'm going to speak the word of truth to each other. This is a commitment not just to say, I'm going to be honest. This is a commitment to say, I'm going to be involved in other believers' lives to speak the truth of God's word to them. Every single one of us 
you're a member of Cloverleaf Baptist, you're a born-again Christian, you ought to be speaking God's word to other believers. We ought to be talking about the Bible. We ought to be talking about what is true. This is what is ultimately measures what truth is. So God doesn't just say quit lying, but he gives us a good reason. We are part of the body of Christ. That's the first sign of the new life. You say, I, I claim to be a Christian. Okay, how's your speech? Is your speech marked by a commitment to truth? Or is it marked by shady deceptions all the time? Does the Spirit of God convict you about what you say when you tell a lie, which even as Christians are going to tell lies, when you do, is that something you confess to God as sin or try to excuse as something that is acceptable? It's a great litmus test. But let's move on to a second sign of life. Is there a pulse? Is there a heartbeat? Is there breathing that is growing? Are there brainwave activities to know, am I, am I alive? Am I spiritually alive? Second sign of life is controlled passions. Look at verse 26. Look back there in the text with me, Ephesians 4, 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, stop having uncontrolled anger that you don't resolve rightly. Instead, replace that with what we would call righteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. So drive out the selfish anger with a righteous anger that gets resolved before sunset. And the reason? Don't give a place to Satan. If we don't resolve anger... In a Christ-honoring way, you're throwing the door open to Satan saying, come on in. You're, you're opening the gates to the city to the enemy while they're encamped around the walls. You're giving Satan a base of attack within your life. So let's just talk about controlled passions for a second. Righteous anger. I think a lot of times we struggle with this category because, let's be honest, 90% of the time, let's say even 99% of the time that we get angry, it's not righteous. Right? We usually get angry because my pride gets wounded. I get angry because someone disrespects me. I get angry because I'm selfish, because what I want to happen doesn't happen. Uh, verse 31 describes this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be, uh, and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Malicious anger that tries to get even. Malicious anger that tries to take control over people. Anger that's just about me trying to get my way. That's pretty common. In fact, it is so common that in James 1 verse 20, James says, the wrath of man, okay, human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Just merely human, selfish, sinful anger does not accomplish what God expects. It does not bring about righteousness. But we would be making an opposite mistake to say, well, therefore I should never get passionate about anything. Um, I think we would all recognize someone who never gets angry towards sin is morally deficient. Someone who is never upset about the sin in their own lives. Now, I think the, play, the, the direction our anger needs to be directed to more than anything else is against the sin that's in my own heart. If sin never bothers me, there's a problem. Uh, I'll point out this fact. Verse 26 does not say... Uh, if you're angry, sin not. It says, but be ye angry and sin not. There is a positive command that we should be angry at certain times for certain reasons. Let me remind you of this fact. God himself is angry towards sin. God, holy or unholy, he's holy. And God's wrath is revealed against sin. John 3.36 says, God's wrath abides on those who don't know Christ. And one day when those who don't know Christ die, they will face God's wrath for all eternity in hell. 
Jesus, in Mark 3, verse 5, when he saw the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees in the synagogue towards the guy who had a hand that was withered, it says he looked upon them with anger. Jesus, when he came in the temple and he saw all of the commerce and the taking advantage of people in the name of religion, he was so moved with anger, he flipped over tables and drove them out of the temple. Now, not in a fit of selfish rage, but because he was passionate for the, for the zeal of God's house. So, how do we know the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? Now, I can sort of say tongue-in-cheek, it's righteous if I do it and unrighteous if someone else does it. That's often how we operate. Well, for me, it was righteous, but for him, it was unrighteous. Righteous anger, let me give you some, some uh, sort of a, a grid. Number one, righteous anger is always directed at sin. Right? It's directed at problems rather than people. So I'm just so mad at him because of what he did. That's unrighteous anger. Righteous anger would say, oh, I am grieved by the sin that's been committed. It's directed at sin rather than at the person. Number two, righteous anger is grieved by the evil of sin, not by my wounded pride. Now, remember, our hearts are deceptive. We're really good at justifying when we're angry. Oh, I'm not wrong. I'm just mad about the... Wounded pride, right? When people wrong us, we can become, I can't believe they did that to me, rather than, oh, they've sinned against God and I'm angry towards the sin. Third, righteous anger is concerned for God's holiness, not my own reputation. Often we will get angry. Well, my, I'm going to look bad because of this thing that happened, rather than, oh, God, your name has been defamed because of this evil that's been done. So righteous anger is directed at sin rather than the individual. It's grieved by the evil of sin, not by wounded pride. It's concerned for God's holiness, not my reputation. Fourth, it is not self-righteous but humble. Oh, this is a tricky one. It's so easy we see evil that happens in our world, and you can even think of any number of social evils that are occurring. We could see, man, abortion, it's evil. And we can be saying, I'm going to be angry at that because, man, it makes me feel good. I, and we begin like the Pharisee, I thank you, O God, that I'm not like the people who think that's okay. And my anger is simply a tactic to make myself feel better than other people. That's unrighteous, right? Self-righteousness is unrighteousness. And finally, righteous anger is not worried, or, or righteous anger is not worried about who is right, but what is right. A lot of times in our selfishness, we'll Get angry against something that is legitimately evil, but is more about, I want to be right and win this argument, rather than what is right and what is true. Now, anger is a very powerful emotion. So that's why immediately, look back in verse 26, be angry. Okay, there's a time to have a righteous kind of anger towards sin. And sin not. Right, the boundary between Anger being righteous and unrighteous is a, is a very short step across the line. The, the difference between a controlled burn, right? We do those out west to try, stop forest fires. And a forest fire, like where's the boundary? It's when things get out of control. Be ye angry and sin not. So while we need to have a healthy and holy anger against sin, we need to carefully guard it against it becoming sinful. Anger is so powerful. It's like a fire that can take control of our souls and of our minds and of our hearts. It can drive us to destroy sin, or it can drive us to destroy relationships. The same dynamite that can clear the way for a new road can destroy an occupied, an occupied building. Anger is like that. It is very, very powerful and very, very dangerous when it is misused. So when my anger is driven by selfishness, when it is driven by wounded pride... 
it's always wrong. Misdirected anger and unchecked anger can lead to hatred and violence and broken relationships. Verse 31 describes it. Bitterness, wrath, anger, and then it comes out and shouting at each other, clamor, evil speaking, that's slander, unforgiveness, even murder. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if you're angry at your brother without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. He says that anger, unjust anger, which most of the time our anger is unjust, is potential murder. That is what leads to murder. If, if it runs its full course, that anger says, I want that person done away with. It's heart-level murder. Serious stuff, be ye angry and sin not. There is so much anger today. People look at what's happening in the world and they feel like, I, I feel helpless with the moral rot in our country and just get consumed with, I'm just angry all the time. Um, the, the, the newscasters know this. They know what gets people ex- worked up is anger. So what do they do? They pray, play on your anger and they work your anger up. And both sides do this. The right does this and the left does this. If we can get you angry, you'll send in the donor dollars. If we can get you angry, you'll keep watching my program. If I can get you angry, you'll watch the program and then buy the products that the advertisers are selling to you. Anger is big business. Keeping, keeping us angry and not resolving it. See, one of the ways you say, how, how, where's the line between be ye angry and sin, sin not? Well, here's part of it. Look back in verse 26. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Righteous anger is always readily resolved. Okay, this is one of the differences between unrighteous. If I'm continuing to seethe in anger about a problem or a situation, but not moving towards a solution, it's unrighteous. It's sinful. Uh, Now, this is a proverbial statement. This is not necessarily saying, if I'm angry, I can't go to bed angry, though I think that's really good advice, especially if you're married. Don't let you and your spouse go to bed without talking through the problem and resolving it. Don't let it stew for a number of days where we're just giving each other silent treatment and walking past and not talking. That's super easy for that concrete to be poured and then to set up and become rock hard. In counseling situations over the years, there are so many relationships where unresolved anger has layered on each other to where it becomes almost impenetrable. Don't go to bed angry. Good advice. But the bigger point here is resolve the anger. So you, 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 there, there is some sin that happens to you or around you. You are righteously angry towards the sin. Let that energy drive you to work towards a resolution. One of the marks of righteous anger is it resolves. You find yourself day after day being perpetually angry about the people out there who are destroying the country or the people in the schools who are te- or, or someone in my life or the, the, someone who in from my past or this person who always cuts me off or the car in front of me who's going 40 miles an hour through the tunnel. You find yourself perpetually angry like that and it's not resolving. It's sin. And you know what we do with sin? We confess it to God as sin and we repent of it. And we might have to repent of it over and over again. And God is merciful over and over again to forgive. So the command here is to resolve your anger. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 to say, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him. Listen, any time the adversary deliver thee over to the judge, and the judge deliver you over to the officer, and thou be cast into prison, and you shall in no wise come out until thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now his point is while you have opportunity to resolve the, the hostility between you and another person, do it because what happens is it begins to grow to where all of a sudden you're sitting in a prison cell, whether literally or metaphorically, 
that could have been prevented way back here when the dispute was this big, right? Back here when the, when the issue was just momentary anger against someone, you didn't resolve it, resolve it quickly. You say, well, I've already let it go. The sun's already gone down on my wrath. Nothing I can do about it. Well, today's a new day. Don't let the sun go down today on your wrath. There are people sitting here in this room who have unresolved anger. And it's eating you alive, and it's been eating you alive for years. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Go home today from church, make a phone call literally today and say, hey, can we talk? And begin the process of restoration. Begin the process of repentance. Now, there's a warning in verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. This is the, I told you, every one of these is a put off. Put off the unrighteous anger. Put on this resolved anger. And then there's a gospel reason. Don't give place to Satan. Over just a page to the right, Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What are wiles? Well, we know about wily, these sneaky schemes that Satan has. You know one of Satan's number one schemes he uses to bring disharmony to the body of Christ? Unresolved anger. How many church splits have happened because one faction of the church got mad at another faction of the church over something that did not matter? How many marriages have been broken over a husband and a wife that got upset over something really petty like who's going to take out the trash and it became this nuclear war? Don't give place to Satan. Don't give him a base of attack. It would be crazy if your nation were at war to invite the enemy to say, hey, put a base right on our territory and like put some Apache helicopters down and put some troops and put some, you know, some, some Delta Force teams there and ha- have free reign behind my, enemy, behind my lines. That would be crazy. And every time there is unresolved anger, we're doing that. We're giving an opportunity for Satan. The point here is do not feed anger. Because if you feed anger, it will turn into a monster. Don't let the embers smolder because it will burst into an inferno. Don't let the weeds begin to grow in your garden because eventually they'll soon take over the entire patch. Resolve your anger. So what are the signs of new life, beloved? One of the, one of the evidences that you are spiritually alive is anger is no longer the dominant theme of your life and you are by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, I'm, I'm resolving this. When I have anger, it's more and more directed towards sin and less and less directed to people who offend me. It's more and more directed towards problems, less and less directed at people. It's less and less smoldering and more and more doused and put out and resolved. Be angry and sin not. But a third, a third mark in new life, you're, you're evaluating, is there a pulse, is there a heartbeat? Am I breathing? Is there spiritual life? Okay, how's the speech? Is it honest or deceptive? Anger, is it resolved or unresolved? Third mark of new life is generous giving. Verse 28. Okay, again, we're we're echoing what Raymer read in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Let him that stole steal no more. Okay, so someone comes to faith in Jesus in the church of Ephesus, and they've had a life as a criminal. They've stolen stuff. Maybe they have just pilfered supplies from their employer. After all, he doesn't pay me enough, so I can help myself to supplies from the office to make up what he owes me, or I can help myself out to some of that change from the register because, let's face it, minimum wage is obscenely low. Or if you're a slave in the ancient world, I'm not being paid at all. This is unjust and wrong. I'm going to make sure I pay myself by helping myself to what the master owns. Any level of, of stealing. Let the one who stole steal no more. 
Okay, stop it. Put off stealing. It has no place in the life of a Christian. Christians should not be known as people who steal, who plagiarize, who rob from people's reputations, who steal glory, who take credit that is not theirs. Think of all the ways we can steal. We can steal, yes, by taking what is not ours. But we also steal when, when we have what God has given to us and we just squander it and waste it. Just throw money away on stuff that we, we don't need or is overpriced or is an unwise purchase. We steal when we withhold the money that is due to God. Um, I believe the tithe that belongs to the old covenant, but the principle of giving transcends the covenants. And in, in Malachi, God asks, will a man rob God? You've, you've robbed me by withholding the tithes, by withholding what, what should be brought to, 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 uh, to fund the service of the temple. We steal when we withhold good from whom it is due. You should honor someone. You should respect someone. You don't do that. You're stealing what is rightly theirs. You steal when you don't pay what you owe, whether on your taxes or, you know what, instead of paying back my debts, I'm just going to file for bankruptcy and stiff all my creditors. It's a form of stealing. It might take the form of shoplifting, of pilfering, of tax fraud, of overworking and underpaying your employees, of plagiarism, of identity theft, of being lazy on the clock, of pirating movies, of copying, you know, running the, the, taking the MP3 files and just sharing them with all your friends and thus robbing the royalties that belong to someone else, taking the photocopier back there in the church and be like, I'm just going to photocopy all the stuff that I should buy. It's all forms of stealing. Now, when we steal, what are we doing? What are we believing? What are we thinking? The Bible is not content with just thinking about behavior. It deals down to beliefs. It gets behind actions to attitudes. What, 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 what's going through someone's mind when they steal? Well, let's be honest. It's way less work for me to take what someone else worked to, to make than for me to go do the work myself. So it's like basically laziness in action, right? It's the... It's the uh, Easier to take it than to work and to go buy it myself. So I steal it. So there's laziness. There's greed. There's entitlement. I feel like I deserve X, so I'm just going to go take it. At Walmart, they're a big corporation, so I'm just going to take their stuff and sort of Robin Hood for myself. Uh, It's this greed, this laziness, this entitlement, entitlement, this selfishness. Stealing breathes the oxygen of idolatry. This notion that I'm owed better than what I have. And at the bottom of it is this rejection of what God has given me. God's not been good enough to me, so I'm going to go out and take it. So how do we drive out stealing? Paul says, stop stealing and start working. The God-ordained means to, to meet our needs is a job. So we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then God's like, hey, there's one of those help-needed signs. There's the answer to your prayer. I've run into at times Christians or other individuals who are praying for God to provide. But well, have you applied for a job? Have you have you have you have you tried to do take advantage of the means that God's put in front of you? So Paul says here in verse twenty eight: instead of stealing, instead labor working with your hands. Instead of taking stuff, go earn it through a job. Paul would put it very bluntly in Second Thessalonians: if someone will not work, neither shall he eat. Right? Hunger is a really good motivation for for working and making sure your needs are met. So start working. Positive command. Replace stealing with diligence. Replace laziness with hard work. But he doesn't stop there. This goes all the way down to our heart. I said a minute ago, what drives stealing is greed. What's the opposite of greed? Generosity. 
The opposite of taking is giving. And so that's exactly what we get here. It says, let him labor with his hands the thing that is good. Why? What's the gospel reason that you might have to give to the one who needs? It's not enough for a thief to just stop stealing. The thief needs to start giving. Be marked by generosity. Every Christian needs to be marked by generosity. You say, I have never violated thou shalt not steal. Listen, if you are not generous, you are living in violation of the command thou shalt not steal because it implies its opposite. Thou shalt not steal implies thou shalt give and meet the needs of thy neighbor. To get underneath theft, to get to its props, to get to the foundation under it, it's not enough to simply stop the bad behavior. It's not enough just to get a job. Gospel transformation goes all the way to the heart. This is where the power of the gospel comes in. It transforms a thief to a philanthropist. It transforms the one who takes and takes and takes into someone who gives and gives and gives. Sacrifice severs the root of selfishness. Instead of pilfering the neighborhood, the ex-thief starts supporting it through generosity. Greed gets slaughtered by generosity. Taking gets replaced by giving. Now, in our American mindset, capitalism and free market and hard work and getting ahead in life, those are all good things. But we often think that the reason I have a job is so that I can make money, so I can provide for the needs of my family, so I can save money and sort of be rich down the road, right? Like, make a good investment, be rich down the road. Biblically, the reason God gave you a job is, yes, to meet your needs and be a blessing to other people and give to meet the needs of other people. The purpose of work is not to live and get rich. The purpose of work is to meet your needs and give generously. This is the power of the gospel. It transforms liars into truth-tellers. It transforms destructive rage into constructive reconciliation. It turns thieves into givers. Generosity marks the new life. Generosity, not just stingy, I'll do the bare minimum, What if you made it a habit in your life of saying, I'm going to keep my eyes open to needs around me, and if I have the resources to meet those needs, I'm going to do it. If I have the resources to do it, I'm going to be sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. I'm going to have room in my budget, margin in my schedule, to where I can be generous and meet needs around me. What if Christians, what if we got the reputation for being the most generous people on the planet? It's kind of sad to me that it's the atheistic billionaires who are seen as the great philanthropists. But we as Christians are viewed as somewhat stingy and greedy. What if we work to say we are going to be generous? What a testimony that would be to the world if we were known as givers rather than takers. When needs came up in the body, that we were like, we're going to step out and we're going to meet those. Marks the new life. Maybe you're marked by generosity. Praise God. That's not something you can take credit for. That's a result of his grace. He's been generous to you, which made you generous to others. A sign of new life. Not something we take credit for, but something we can see and say, praise God for that. It's a sign that I'm alive. But we come into a fourth mark of the new life, and that is edifying speech. Verse 29, let no corrupt, no no vile communication proceed out of your mouth. We often think that foul language, that's kind of a modern problem. You know, everybody's watched too many R-rated movies, and they're just throwing foul language around of four-letter words and all these things. It was a problem back in Paul's day. A foul language of angry language, of demeaning language. So Paul moves from stealing to speaking. He moves from the works of the hands to the works of the lips. 
He's addressed speaking truth already, but now he says we are to reject all unwholesome speech. So corrupt speech is any speech that is vulgar. Corrupt speech is any speech that is demeaning, that is untrue, that is foul. It's not just a list of banned four-letter words that they can't say on Saturday morning TV, but any speech that tears down or drags down. Once again, this is something that's become normalized in our communication. We no longer are shocked if the President of the United States uses foul language from behind the bully pulpit. In fact, people are applauding and clapping and like, yeah, go get him. We no longer are saddened when people who should know better use the most vile language in their, in their discourse. It's taken today to be like, if you cuss, that's a sign of authenticity. You're, you're a real person who really tells it like it is. No, it's a sign of weakness and sin. It's not a sign of authenticity. It's a sign of, of a heart that has been away from God. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In fact, Jesus goes a step further. In Matthew 12, 36, he says, Every idle word that you speak, not just the really bad words, but even just the idle words, they're just, you're just shooting the breeze, nothing worth saying, it's neither helpful nor... Un- it's, even the idle words you speak, you will give account thereof on the day of judgment. God cares immensely about what we say. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say is a direct channel to your heart. So I don't really mean that what you say reveals your heart, reveals what you think. And God will hold us accountable for what we say. And when we defame and blaspheme and use epithets or jokingly, oh, I'm going to just throw a racial slur out there, isn't that funny? We are demeaning people who are made in the very image of God, and it is nothing less than an attack on God himself. It's not political correctness or wokeness to say racial epithets have no place in the mouth of God's people or anybody. That's simple, basic biblical truth. We can't curse people who are made in God's image and claim to take God seriously. So no corrupt communication, epithets or demeaning language or vile speech or four-letter words. It's got no place. So what do we replace it with? Look at this. Here's what should proceed out of your mouth, that which is good. Language that is good and wholesome and beneficial for the use of edifying. What is edifying? Building up. So before we're saved, we use our tongues to tear people down. It makes us feel good. Feel good by tearing other people down so I can look better by comparison. It says use your tongue to build people up. Instead of gossiping, praising. Instead of criticizing, thanking. What is wholesome speech? It's speech that is beneficial. It is speech that is edifying. It is speech that is grace-giving. Look at the end of the verse, that it may minister grace to the hearers. So that's the kind of speech we need, that, that presents the grace of God. He has been so immensely generous and good and kind to us. We ought to use our speech to proclaim that same grace, that same favor to other people. So it's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to quit cussing. I'm going to start speaking grace, words of truth and encouragement to people around me. I've heard people say, um, one preacher in, in particular, he was a Marine and a really tough guy. He said, when I became a Christian, I lost my entire vocabulary. Praise God. What a transformation. If people knew you as someone who was angry and cussing and foul language and foul mouth, and then you're like, it's because of Jesus? I don't speak that way anymore. What a testimony that is. Now, he goes on to say in verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. The gospel reason is the Holy Spirit of God. 
the third person of the Trinity has come to dwell in your heart. You say, it's really hard to change the way I speak. Yes, it's impossible, in fact, James 3 says. Nobody can tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. But guess who can tame the tongue? The one who created the tongue. And he dwells in your heart. If you're a believer, you are the dwelling place of God. He seals you. He identifies you. He marks you as God's property until the day of redemption. Now, to put a sort of sobering spin on this, that means every word you hear is spoken with the Holy Spirit right there with you. There's some people who, you know, they're, they're talking one way, and then I, well, oh, the pastor's here, the pastor's here, let's not say what we were saying, which it kind of annoys me. I'm like, okay, I'm a human being, it's just be you. Um, but sometimes people are like, if the pastor's around, we can't say certain things, or we're going over to grandma's house, let's make sure we don't talk about certain things that would be offensive to her. How much more... If the holy God of the universe is dwelling in us, how much more should that motivate us to use speech that is pleasing to God? We need an awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. I'm convinced the reason our speech is so vile and so we just take so little concern about it is that we don't have an awareness that God is with us all the time. Now, finally... Supernatural forgiveness. And this one takes the cake. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Verse 31 describes the normal process of things. Bitterness, that's resentment. Somebody wrongs you, it hurts. And you hold on to that. That's bitterness. Anger and wrath... Those are pretty much two sides of the same coin. Um, they're basically synonymous. That, that idea, that first word, thumos, um, uh, wrath, is the outburst of rage, while the word translated anger is that seething rage. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to vent my anger. Okay, that's, that's uh, the first word, venting it. Other people, I'm just going to hold it in. So neither of those, neither holding it in or venting it out is the way that the Christian deals with unrighteous anger. Then there's clamor. That's the shouting and the yelling and the screaming at each other. Uh, Then there's the slander, the evil speaking. The word is blasphemy. Slandering other people. Using abusive and demeaning speech in an argument to try to get the better over someone. All of it, put it all away decisively. That should have no place in the church, no place in the family of God. Put it away with all malice, all meanness. Um, Christians should not be mean and nasty and hostile and malicious people. Like, should go without saying. That's not a virtue. Maliciousness is not a virtue. It's not a sign of strength. It is a sign of wickedness. Put it away without malice. So he says, put all of that away. Put away the, the, both the clamor and the evil speaking. Listen, neither shouting it to their face nor whispering it behind their back is right. Neither holding it in nor venting it out is right. Neither of those is dealing with the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is, I don't want to forgive people. So he says, put all that away. Instead, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That last phrase, even as God forgave you. You say, how much should I forgive? You should forgive as much as God has forgiven you. How long should I forgive as long as God has forgiven you? How many times do I need to forgive as many times as God has forgiven you? The standard for our forgiveness is not just, well, they stopped doing it, so I'll forgive them. No, the standard for your forgiveness is God himself. That's the standard that we're called to, beloved, is to forgive like God has forgiven us. 
So how has God forgiven us? God has forgiven me in spite of my sin. You might say, why should I forgive them? You don't know what they've done to me. Well, according to Matthew 18, 21 to 35, my sin against God is infinitely worse than any sin that someone has committed against me. Any sin. Because my sin is committed against a God who is infinite. Sin against me is committed against someone who's finite. My sin against, is committed against a God who is holy. Sin is committed against someone who sin against me is committed against someone who's a sinner. My sin against God deserves his eternal wrath. And here's the, here's the truth, beloved. When you became a Christian, God took all of your sin, all of your evil, all of your, your hatred against him, and he nailed it to the cross, and he forgave it completely in Christ. And he says, I want you to forgive other people like that. One of the signs that you are forgiven is that you forgive other people. A heart of unforgiveness may suggest a heart that is unforgiven. A heart, that is, a heart of unforgiveness may, may signify a heart that is unforgiven. A heart of unforgiveness may suggest that you have forgotten what God has done for you in forgiving you. So some of you have been wronged in some horrible ways. Maybe you can think of even this past week, something happened. I can't forgive them. Go back to the cross and look at Jesus who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as he's being tortured to death. That's the motivation. That's the model of our forgiveness. We forgive because God has forgiven us and God has forgiven me graciously because of Christ. That's why we forgive. God's forgiven me fully. God has forgiven me eternally. God has forgiven me freely. God has forgiven me not... Because I meet some standard. It's not forgiveness if I say, well, I'll forgive them when they meet me halfway. No, that's, that's doing a negotiation. That's a hostage negotiation. Think of how much freer you would be if you would live like this. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's crazy. You forgive those who wrong you even when they don't deserve it, because that's what God's done for you. You forgive those who wrong you, even when they haven't met any criteria to deserve it, because that's what God has done for you. This is, a, I say, supernatural forgiveness, because the only power strong enough to fuel this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness is free, sacrificial, sovereign, eternal, complete, just, and loving. And he says, I want you to do the same. So how do you know you have passed from death to life? Yes, there has to be a time in your life that you could look back and say, I have repented of my sins and followed Jesus. I put my trust in him and him alone. But how do I know that's real? It's going to produce a change in my life. It's going to, it's going to change my life to where I am marked by honesty and by controlled passions and by gener generous giving and edifying speech and supernatural forgiveness. Here's what I would suggest to everyone here in the room. Do a careful evaluation of your heart. Maybe get with someone who knows you well. If you're married, sit down with your spouse and say, okay, well, let's, I want you to be honest with me. I don't want you to tell me what I want to hear. Let's go through these items one by one and see, is this true in my life? And are there areas where this needs to be more evident in my life? Where do I need to grow? And then ask God, forgive me for where, where you have fallen, and then seek growth in those areas. And if you're here today and you're like, none of these things are true in my life. I need that forgiveness that you've been talking about. Earlier in Ephesians, it says, by grace are you saved through faith. 
Then not of yourselves the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by doing these things. We're saved as we trust in Jesus who died for us because we haven't done these things. So if you're not saved, I plead with you to run to Christ.